morning. Good to see you guys. I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, God, I'm going to believe that. Um, so anyways, uh, if, if you're new here, uh, I want to welcome you. And my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. And I get an opportunity to do the bulk of the preaching. We'll do such this morning. So if you have a Bible, we, we have been in a series in the book of Exodus. Would you turn there, particularly to chapter 18. So Exodus chapter 18 is where we're going to be. If you don't uh, own a Bible or you forgot a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. Just make sure you uh, keep your hand up really high. Um, and if you don't own one, please keep the one that we are handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of the Lord. Okay, so quick recap on the book of Exodus and then I'll let you guys know what we're going to be looking at, uh, particularly today in, in uh, chapter 18. Um, I'm going to let you know from the beginning. There are certain texts that when you preach, you're like, oh, I can't wait to preach this. There's certain texts like this can be difficult. And there's certain texts of like, I probably shouldn't even be preaching this. This is the one that I probably shouldn't be preaching. Um, so none of the other guys wanted to. So I, 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 uh, I don't know, it's kind of the way God works and the way sometimes other pastors work. So I have, I have this particular text. One, because it's on organization, structures, organization, structures. Just even saying that word, I almost fell asleep. So uh, it's... But it's godly, and so we're going to, so those of you guys who are structures and systems people, I, I expect to hear a lot of amens. I'm letting you know now because I know you want to plan, so plan on saying it later in the, um, in the particular sermon, and so giving you a heads up on that. So let me recap you on where we've been and then kind of the structure of our text for this morning, this chapter, and some implications uh, that will have in it. So Exodus, we, what we see is that God is doing a work throughout the world, but he's working through a particular people. His particular people find themselves in Egypt. Now, while in Egypt, they were enslaved. They were enslaved there for 400 years. God begins to work. But the way that God works is he doesn't just snap his fingers. What God does is he raises up a leader. Uh, a particular leader is Moses. And Moses is unlikely leader. This is the way that God works. He raises up Moses, works through Moses to go and redeem and save his people out of the hands of Pharaoh. And the way that he does it, God begins to display his wonders. And he displays his might and his wonders not just to show off, but to show his people that he is God, that they may be able to worship him. And what we said about worship is, worship is responding to God in his actions, how he reveals himself, and we respond in faith, working itself through obedience. And the way that the people of God did that is in the last plague, um, the last plague, which was 10 of them, was that God provided a means for them to escape death. That death was coming to the firstborn of everybody in the land, of humans as well as the livestock. God said, if you take a particular lamb, take the blood, and you put it on your doorpost, this would be a sign if you respond to God in faith and obedience that the angel of death would pass over them. And so hence we get the Passover. The people of God did that. Moses, by God's grace, led them out out of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh began to chase them. They find themselves at the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. All two million crossed. Pharaoh's army comes in, and the water floods them. Find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea, on the way to Sinai. They stopped, right? This is a couple weeks ago. They stopped. And they wrote a worship song. It was a great song. Um, we, we, we did a whole lesson on it. We sang it together. We had tambourines and so forth. No, we didn't do that last part. But it was really good. They worship. And it seems like they finally know God and they want to follow him. But what happens in the next chapter, what we talked about last week, is they begin grumbling. In fact, that word grumbling came up over and over and over and over again. And what we said is the people of God years and years ago used to grumble. Imagine that. It's a good thing things have changed. And so you have, you have this picture of God's people grumbling, but what does God do? He still provides, and he still provides. And what we said is, even when we find ourselves to be faithless, God remains faithful. He's that type of God. He's 
We've said before, he's that good. He's that good. And so what we see today is Moses and the people of God, they find themselves not at Sinai yet, although they're almost there. And the reason why I keep mentioning Mount Sinai, if you don't understand the narrative, Mount Sinai is one of, and chapter 19 of Exodus is one of the most prominent pastors, or pastors, passages in the Bible. One, because it begins to show us how God begins to reveal his law and what he desires of his people. And so we're going to get to that next week. But before there, there's this chapter 18, and at first glance you go, why does this here? And like, why does this fit here? Because he brings in an old person from, um, an old character from chapters 2 and 3 who we haven't heard about, brings him in, and all of a sudden he becomes kind of the main focus of this particular section. And what we'll see is there's a few things that God is doing. He's showing, uh, the writer is showing us that God is continuing his plan of redeeming all nations. And then also what it looks like for us to continue in discipleship, ultimately needing and desiring other people in our lives to be able to point us to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at today, walk through this, this section, and then be able to look at the two implications of what God has for us. So let's pray, and then we'll ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to worship. I pray for all of us in the room that we would feel and sense your presence, and in your presence that we would be convicted towards transformation in you. God, that whatever it is that we've done this week, whatever it is that we're thinking about next week, whatever is happening now, God, that you would overwhelm us with your presence. God, that you, we would be mindful of who you are and what your son Jesus has done on our behalf. God, we ask that you would move and you would do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to your great word. God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 18. We're going to begin here together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So we got to pause there because Jethro, it's the first time we heard the name Jethro, not the first time we heard of this character. Um, something's happening here. The writer is trying to get us to do something. One, he's trying to get us to remember all that Israel had been through. Like a lot has happened. I mean, when we started this book, they were slaves. The next chapter, there was a boy that was born that was supposed to be murdered, but he was not. His mother put him down the, the Nile River only to be, his life to be spared and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. That was Moses. And so he's trying to get us to recap, like, whoa, look at what God has been able to do, particularly in the life of Moses, and then more broadly in the life of his people. Now you go, Jethro, where did Jethro come from? We first heard about Jethro in chapter 2 or chapter 3 of Exodus. And that is, when Moses grew up in the palace and he was 40, he began to look at his people, the Hebrew people. And he saw the way that they were treated. And he wanted to stand in the gap and be able to help them. So there was a Hebrew man who was getting in an argument with an Egyptian. And so what Moses began to do is stand with this Hebrew, this Hebrew brother. And he got in a fight, he punched the dude, and he killed the dude, okay? He fled from there to the wilderness. While he was at the wilderness, he was sitting down by a well. Seven women came by. Um, and they were there to feed their flock. And what happens is some other men showed up and they were harassing them. And Moses was like, wait, this is, this is not about to go down like this on my clock. So Moses got up to protect him. And I think he was pretty confident in himself, one, because he just killed the guy with one, with one punch. He was known as one hitter quitter Moses, okay? <laughs> so Moses protects these women. The men leave. And then the women leave and they go back to their father. Their father, as we first hear about, his name is Ruul, Okay who later is became, becomes Jethro. We'll talk about that in a second. He doesn't become Jethro. He's always Jethro. But they say his name was Ruel. Okay, he changed his name. But he didn't really change his name. He has two names. We're going to talk about that later. Okay, so what you have 
is the seven women come back, and they talk to their father, and they say, he says, what you, you guys got back early. They're like, oh, you won't believe it. There was this man. His name was Moses, Hebrew dude, one hitter, quitter Moses. I don't know if you heard about him. He's undefeated. <laughs> and he, he protected us. And they're like, go get this man. They go get him. They bring him back. Jethro says, you should marry my daughter. He marries his daughter. They have kids. He lives with him. And so Jethro is like a guide, like a father figure, and like a father to Moses. And you go, Jethro, how come he has two names? Okay, there's a lot of questions that are going to come up here that we don't know the answer to. In this section, we're going to talk about that they have a meal together. It mentions that um, Moses and Jethro have a meal together while he comes to visit him um, on their way to Sinai. And they have bread, but it's not the same word for manna. When last week we just found out that they're going to have manna for 40 years. Did Jethro bring his own bread? Here's the answer. We don't know. Okay? The next thing is, it says that when Jethro comes, he brings Moses' his wife and his two kids. So was Moses' was Moses, his wife and kids not with him in Egypt? Did they not experience the parting of the Red Sea? Did Moses say, listen, God has me on a mission. I got to go do some things. Um, wife, kids, why don't you guys go with your father? I'll be gone to November. Right? Is that what happens? We don't know. Okay? Um, there's a few things that we just don't know. We don't know why Jethro has two names. But there's many of us in this room that we have two names, okay? I share this story about once a year. When I have two names, all right? And my mom, when I was born, November 19th, 1982, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. This can only happen in Mississippi, by the way. Is I'm born, my mom names me Ricky Dwayne Stewart. Um, my aunt, who by the time, at the time was about 18, 19 years old, calls up to the hospital the day after I'm born. My mom's still in the hospital. She calls up the hospital. She's not at the hospital. She's at home. She's not my mom. She calls and says, hey, this is Brenda. I'm in room such and such. Brenda is my mom's name, not my auntie's. Okay? Yeah, what would you like, ma'am? Um, yeah, I, I named my son Ricardo Christian, or excuse me, Ricky Dwayne. I want to change his name to Ricardo Christian. The lady just said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Changes my name. Only in Mississippi, right? And so my mom, does she get upset? She doesn't even care. She doesn't even care. Like, it's just like, oh, you change it? Right? That's it. <laughs> so my mom had named me Ricky after Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy. Mom said, I don't like Ricky. We'll name him Ricardo. The problem with that is in Mississippi at that time, there's, there weren't a lot of Latinos there. They didn't know how to spell Ricardo, so she spelled it with two Cs. Most Ricardos just have one C, right? And the crazy thing about it is she changed my name to Ricardo, and my family does not call me Ricardo. They call me by my middle name, Sean. Nobody in my family refers to me Ricardo. The only time they refer to me Ricardo is to make fun of me. Oh, Ricardo, right? <laughs> and it's confusing for my wife and my kids because when we're around my family, everybody calls me Sean, and I readily respond to it. If I'm not around them, I hear the name Sean, I don't even flinch. So someone last hour was like, oh, we're going to call you Sean. You can. I won't pay attention because you're not family, right? And so... From Mississippi, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, though. So you have, so some people have two names. Jethro has a second name, and apparently he wanted to be called Jethro, which I always thought was a country name, but now I know it's a Midian name. So this is what we have. Now, here's what happens. Verse 2, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner. And a foreign land. And the name of the other one was Eleazar. For he said, the, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he encamped at the mountain of God. Now, here's another thing here. We don't know, we don't believe, we don't know for a fact if the mountain of God is, is Mount Sinai because apparently they're not there just yet, but he says the mountain of God, and it's rather ambiguous, so we don't know if it is or it isn't. So when someone asks, are they already at Mount Sinai, we don't really know. Verse 6, and when he set when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they, asked, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel, and in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, for he has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. So here is what happens. Jethro brings Moses, his wife, into it. Moses hears word of it. He's excited, as he should be. He's going to see his wife. He's going to see his kids. The way the narrative, the narrative goes is that he sees the fa his father-in-law. He runs out to him, and he, he kisses him, right? They embrace each other. Um, why did it not say he embraced his wife and kids we haven't seen? I don't know. The narrator didn't tell us that. Partly is because I think what the narrator is doing is showing the relationship between Moses and Jethro. Many of us know what it's like to not have the strongest father figure in our life and then for somebody else to stand in the gap. Jethro stands in the gap for Pharaoh. We don't know, excuse me, for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's done. Uh, as he stands, he stands in the gap for Moses. We don't know about Moses' father. We know a little bit about his mother. We don't really know about his father. However, this man had been to him as his father figure. So he comes and he sees him and he, and he, and he hugs him and he embraces, his, embraces him and he kisses him. And then his father-in-law, um, he, he begins to tell him all that the Lord had done. And what he's doing here, he's not just narrating something. He's telling him about the mighty hands of God and the mighty actions of God and the wonder of God. And what God did to Pharaoh, who, by the way, was like a god. And how God had done this and how God had done that. And as he's telling this story, you have someone who's a priest of Midian. And what we know at this time is the priest of Midian, um, Jethro, was not a believer in Yahweh at this moment. But what we know from this narrative is after he hears the mighty acts of God and what God has done and thus who God is, he says, wait a minute, now I know this is the God of all gods because he has done this. Okay, when we begin to think about what the gospel looks like in the Old Testament, um, how is it good news? It is always, it's the same thing in the New Testament. It's how God reveals himself through his actions to save and redeem a people um, ultimately for his glory on their behalf. And when, when Jethro sees this, he begins to believe. And so how do you know? Because faith is always not just something you say, but something that reflects itself in your actions. So he does what he knows to do when it's a time to worship. He gets something, a burnt, a burnt offering and a sacrifice to worship the God and whom he just heard about. Like God is up to something, um, not just in saving Israel's life, because it's not just about Israel, it's for the whole world. 
that the Midianites, particularly Jethro, did not know Yahweh in this ways, but they had an encounter by what God was doing amongst a people. So we're going to come back to this when it comes to implications, but we see this. So Moses, excited to see Jethro, and I'm sure excited to see his wife and his two sons as well. Well, now from here, it says that they eat, they celebrate in the tent, and the next day, Moses is about to go to work. And his father-in-law wants to come to work with him, and his father-in-law has some, some advice for him for how to do things. Sometimes father-in-laws have some advice for Even when you don't even ask them. So, verse 13. <laughs> the next day Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people came to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute... They come to me, and I just decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God, his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Obey my voice. I will give, I, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifty, fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they, they shall bring to you, but in any small matter they should decide themselves. So it is, will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will, will go to their place, their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And they judged the people at all times. And any hard case they brought to Moses, but any smaller matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. I love this. That's the, by the way, that's it. We're not going to hear from Jethro anymore. Um, Jethro came in, dropped the bomb, and then left, okay? I, I, I do, I do, I do love this because... There is this sense where you could just see Moses being like, I'm happy you guys are here. You guys can stay at my tent. It's just like it's both of ours. And um, we're going to go, Moses. I got to go work. Jethro's like, you mind if I go to work with you? Sure. And you got to just picture him. Moses is there, and there's two million people, right? And, you know, many of those are kids, but everybody's coming to him. And it says he's there from morning to night. It's like he's setting up shop. And he's just sitting there, and he goes, what's going on in your life? Okay. Next, what's going on in your life? Next, what's going on in life? And Jethro is looking at this. Notice this. Jethro doesn't go, hey, Moses, can I ask you a question? Right? He doesn't say, hey, man, listen, I'm not even from here. This is not even my territory. This is not even my house. I mean, I know I gave you my daughter, but she's your, you know, your wife now, and I'm just her father. But, you know, she's always going to be my baby girl. Um, you're right? I'm not saying this from experience or anything, but it just seems like sometimes father-in-laws will just go, I'm just going to tell you something I'm not even going to ask. Right? And 
I love my father-in-law a lot. And I know he's probably listening to this podcast when it's going to be recorded. So I love him a lot. (laughs) But sometimes they know more than you. And that's funny and true. Right? Why? Because there's a reason they're they're the father-in-law. They've clearly raised somebody who's done well enough that you would marry. They've done a decent enough job. They've been around this, this, this world way longer than you. They may not get your culture and your swag or your language and a bunch of other things, but they still know more than you. And many of us, God willingly, will become father-in-laws. And guess what? It will be our turn. <laughs> Mo- Moses, Moses, Moses receives it because I think there's genuine relationship there. Moses is wearing himself out. He's wearing himself out. And Jethro sees it and goes, the thing that you're doing is not good. Like, it's not good. And Jethro didn't read a bunch of leadership books, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have a podcast that he's listening to, right? He's not doing best practices. He's not going up and saying, what's, what's the self-help? He's looking going, this is impossible. And he doesn't just say it's bad for the leader. He says it's bad for the people, right? He goes, you guys, you're going to wear yourself out, Moses, and the people, they're going to wear themselves out. And Moses is looking like, I mean, he said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm here. I'm just, I'm supposed to be a representative of God. I'm telling them who God is and what God is like. And then when they got disputes and stuff, they come to me and I'd let, I, I, you know, I'm doing a lot, <laughs> right? And he goes, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that much. And he goes, here's what you should do. You should actually tell them about God and you should tell them about who God is and what he's like and tell them his statutes, his commands. Tell them these things that they may know what to do. So in essence, you, you should be able to teach the people for sure. But then from there, moreover, as he says, moreover, he says, you should, you should, now find leaders, other people. And he goes, and some of them, they're going to have different gifts. Some people are going to be able to lead a 1,000. Okay, find them. And there's some people, not that much. They're going to be able to do 100. Find them. And there's going to be some people, not that much. They're going to be able to do 50. And there's going to be some people, not that much. They're going to be able to be 10. Find them. And then what will happen is they will begin to care for each other in these matters and so forth. And, and the large matters, like the big ones where you have to go to the presence of God and say, what, was, what would God want for them? Those things can come to you. Um, but all of the little ones, they can take care of themselves. Um, and he doesn't even say this is going to be godly. He says, let's just be honest, it's going to be easier. Sometimes easier is godly, right? Or it's least wise. Not always. It's not shortcuts. He was just saying, this is wise. And then when he says something, he doesn't just say, this is my thing. He goes, God will do something for you. If you do this, God will do this. So you go from this person who's worshiping another God, hears about the true God, becomes a believer in this God, worships him, and because God loves him, has given him clearly wisdom, and he goes, okay, do this, and God will bless it. So therefore, it is godly. Now, dare I say, it's actually godly to have structures and systems and organization. I've never said that before, but it's true, right? And I, and not that there's only just two different types of people, but some of us are structures, systems, organization, planner, like, you're, you're those type of people. And you know what? It is amazing that we have you. Now, some of us are like, no, 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 like, I'm just like spur of the moment, and usually we over-spiritualize it both sides. One side is, you know, God is a God of order, you know, it's day one, day two, so they over-spiritualize it and so forth. These people are just like, no, 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 I'm about people, you know, God's about relationship, that's why he put on flesh, and it's like, you know, it's spontaneous, I can do things, and I don't have to be all, like, strict with the rules. Okay, um, quit trying to make God into your own image. We're supposed to reflect his image, right, right? So, so what you have is usually these people kind of go at it. But what the people over here, what they need to see 
is that the structures and systems are there in order that you can actually do the things with the people, right? No amens on that one, okay? You know why? Because the structures and systems people are probably right now trying to organize how we're all going to get out of this building in a certain way, and the cars will get out into the street and so forth so that we can have a good time in here. It matters. What we see is that Jethro is not just saying, Moses, I want to lighten your load. It's not just ultimately for him. It's for the people. That you have to have some sense of strict systems and structures to lead. Now, this is not a message for leadership. And oftentimes people go to this for leadership, which is fine. This is a message for people and particularly the people of God. And so when we look at this, um, one, what we see is Moses implements this and it's good for the people. It's great for the people. Jethro goes, my job is done here. I'm gone. We don't hear about Jethro. But we're going to look at this and go, what, what implications like, do we get from this as the people of God now? So let me, let me step back here for a second. And I say this every week, but we, we have to. When you're looking at the Old Testament, there's a way to interpret the Old Testament that is different when you're interpreting the New Testament and different genres of the New Testament. Um, so when we, right now we're this Old Testament narrative. What we ought not to do is go, okay, you're Jethro and the, like, you know, you guys are like the people and I'm Moses. And uh, Tim back there, he's Jethro because he's wise and he's a father-in-law. Um, and that's, no, that's just not how it works. We are the people of God, and God is God. What does this text teach us about God and what he's up to? The hero of the story is actually not Jethro. Just so you know, the hero of the story is always going to be God. He's, a, he's, a, he's a so, the sovereign author of all scripture, and he's the one who is guiding and ushering history into its intended end. So what does it teach about God, and what does it teach us about people? And ultimately, particularly, what does it teach about God's plan? So at least two implications that I have for us this morning. The first one right here is there's one gospel and many people. And you go, how did you get that from this? It's a great question, guys. All right? So here, 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 here's why. We gloss over this because we need to understand. I should have said this earlier. In the, when you interpret anything, especially Old Testament, you have to take that particular story, so chapter 18, and the greater story, Exodus, and the greater story, the Bible, to be able to make sense of it. So what we have is this particular story isn't a story of Exodus, but Exodus is part of a greater story. And what we know is um, if you want to understand the Bible, you can split the Bible in two different sections. Um, and not Old Testament, New Testament. Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11 is creation and God creating a people and those people sinning against God and God not turning his back, but promising that he's going to do something. But we don't know how he's going to redeem and restore all that has been broken. And all meaning all of creation. Genesis 12, we begin to get a glimpse of that, and that he chooses a man named Abram, who he changes his name to Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he's going to do what? He's going to make a family out of him, and his family will bless the families of the world. Well, that word families is the same word that we have in English, nation, which also translates in Hebrew, ethnicity. What he's saying to him is, I'm going to now redeem all of creation, and I'm going to do it by first starting and working through a family. It wasn't choosing them because of their race or ethnicity. So we say it this way. It wasn't because of race. It was because of grace. God's merit, his favor upon them, unmerited favor that they received was to work through them that the world, the nations might know. This was the beginning of the gospel, which begs the next question. How do you know that? It's a great question. When you look in the New Testament, particularly in Genesis or Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writing about the gospel. He says, of this gospel, it was preached beforehand to Abraham. And what he's talking about, the reference goes all the way back to Genesis 12. So in essence, this
This was the beginning of the good news that God was choosing a family, and through this family, his desire was to include all nations. Every ethnicity, every tribe, and every tongue. Why this makes sense, Jethro is not an Israelite. What we saw in the, ex, excuse me, in the Passover story is that when the people of God, the Hebrew men and women were leaving, it wasn't just Hebrew men and women. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, it says it was a mixed generation, meaning there were other um, Egyptians who were living in the land who heard the word of the Lord, responded in faith and obedience, put the blood on their door, the angel of death passed over them, and they were included with the people of God, not by race, but by grace that they were responding to the very acts and words of God. What we have here is the narrator is including that God's not done and he's going to constantly be adding people to his fold of people who were not only Israelites. But the gospel is not something that is exclusive. But the people of God is a people that is inclusive, not because of the people, because of the nature of the message of their God. It is good news that God is saving and restoring and redeeming all people who would respond to the actions and words of God. Amen? So we see this plan is continuing. And it doesn't just, just stop here with, with Jethro. And nor do all the Midianites become Christians. What we're going to see later is uh, in the story, as you, as you read the Bible, the Midianites actually become enemies of the people of God. But when you read the rest of the Bible, you see that there's other um, non-Israelite men and women that are included into the people of God. You hear prophecies of even that one day, the ultimate enemy of God's people in the Old Testament, that Egypt will begin to know God. You see these prophecies. And at the very beginning of the New Testament, particularly in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, you have this genealogy of all of the people who are in the same genealogy as Christ. And many of those people are not Israelites. People who you know like Rahab or people like Ruth that are included because God was saving all nations. Jesus Christ, before he is crucified and before he is sitting on the throne, he tells his disciples what? Excuse me. After, before he's ascended, he tells his disciples what? All authority in heaven has been given to me. Go make disciples of some nations. No. Go make disciples of all nations because this was God's plan from the beginning. And what happens when the church gets started? It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth with the gospel message. We see at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue is worshiping God. It says no longer will we need a temple to worship him. Because the light of the gospel of who he is, Jesus himself will light up as every nation and every tribe begins to worship him. It's always one, one gospel, many people. That the same gospel that we begin to believe in of God moving from primarily through the work of Christ, it was not something that just happened in Matthew's gospel or happened in the New Testament. It's something that God has been doing in all of creation to be able to show us why we need a Savior and ultimately that he's the one who's been saving us the whole time. Amen? The second implication that we see here has to do with us as a people, and it's many hands and light work. And that is this. Jethro goes to Moses, and he gives him, ultimately to say that this, this thing called Christianity, this thing called being a part of the people of God, it's not a one-man show. Hear me. And you've heard me say this before. This is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, you don't go to church because of preachers or, uh, you know, worship is being bombed or children's ministry is tired or whatever. You know how you guys, you, got, you know how you talk. Uh, <laughs> and and you, you, you gather to be with God's people. You gather to, to make things what they're supposed to be about, about Jesus. 
that we gathered because every single one of us, our mind and our emotions and our affections have drifted so far from God in so many different ways that it reminds us that when we sing a song, none but Jesus. It reminds us that when we've drifted like crazy that there is a God who is recklessly pursuing us and there's no wall he's going to kick down on all of the Liam Neeson stuff that he's about to do. <laughs> right? There, there, there. There, it reminds us, it reminds us of who this God is, and we worship together, we commune together, we hear God's word together. What Moses is, or Jethro says to Moses, it's not good, Moses, that everybody's coming to you. And this is not some weird way for me to say, don't come to me. It's not it. I promise you it's not. Um, leaders get overwhelmed, um, not because of the people. If I get overwhelmed, which I do, which I might be, um, it's, it's because of me, Right? And the way it works is we have to be in each other's life. There's no such thing as called professionalism when it comes to ministry. Why? Because Jesus says, all authority and heaven has been given to me. Go make disciples. And what does he do next? He gives us the spirit. He doesn't just give pastors the spirit. He doesn't just give evangelists the spirit. He doesn't just give men the spirit. He doesn't just give women the spirit. He gives his people the spirit. And then... Peter goes as far to say is everything that we need that pertains to godliness, he's already given us. There's no, we don't, it's, it's already there. And the way that he's given it to us, as, as Paul writes, is it's like in jars of clay. That's us. Like he's placed the beauty of who he is in like styrofoam cups that we may actually be in each other's life, trusting in the spirit, pointing each other to Jesus. So, so when there are certain issues, yeah, you got to bring them to the leaders of the church that are just too big. But the rest of it is us being in each other's life and us caring for each other and making the work a little lighter because we are one beggar telling the other beggar where we both can find bread. And as long as that bread is found in Jesus Christ, as we talked about last week, as we talked about every week, then we're in a good place, in a good space. So the way that looks is sometimes when we come to discipleship or being in people's lives, we're like, well, I don't know if I can lead thousands or if I can lead hundreds. Forget about the number. If you know enough to be, if you know enough to believe in Jesus, then you know enough to share about Jesus, right? If you, if you know enough, to know something about God, then you know enough to share that something about God. All you have to do is to be a half a step in front of somebody else to be able to pull them along with you. And when you find yourself a half a step or multiple steps behind people, ask for help, right? To be able to pour in each other's life or be in each other's life or whatever language you're comfortable with, be friends with people who love Jesus and in loving Jesus, they point you to Jesus. Perfection is not it, it's never gonna exist. We have one who is perfect and his name is Jesus and that's the one who we point to and that's the one who we follow and that's the one we derive our strength from. Anything outside of that is, is, is kind of pointless. So, so Jethro doesn't tell him, Moses, what you need to do is you go plant a bunch of churches, get some bomb preachers, get some bomb music and so forth. He goes, no, take some people who love God and get them to love God with others. You teach and make sure the, make sure the, make sure the word of God is, is taught that people know what to do and then they got to take that, and then they got to be able to and work it out in each other's lives with one another. Somebody asked me before, if there's one book that you can have your church read that everybody would read, what would it be? And that's a hard question to answer. Of course, I said the Bible. And then um, outside of that, there's a book called Instruments in a Redeemer's Hand. This particular book, uh, it just instrument in the redeemer's hands that we're all just instruments in god's hand and that means every single person that's a part of the body of christ has something to give and something to participate in somebody else's life and that it doesn't need to be something professional but it's something we take the gifts and the spirit that god has given us to be in each other's life to lighten the load and to make things easier because <laughs> sometimes easier is godly not always but in this case it is and the way that we do that like the way that we do that is not necessarily by 
having to know the most things. Because when it comes to knowing God, a lot of us know a lot about God. Philippians says this, how about you just live up to what you've already attained? That which you do know, be able to do that and give it away. That we draw our strength not from our intellect, but from our Savior. We draw our organization not just from our personality or our Enneagram number, but from our Savior. We draw our love not from just the way we were raised, but from our Savior. And everything we do, we do in the name, in the fame, and for the glory of our Savior, who is Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we, we thank you that as we look at your word and we look at the greater story of what you're doing, that we find ourselves, Lord, we're not in the Exodus, Lord. We're not at the foot of Mount Sinai. We're not even waiting to receive the law. But we see now in Jesus and by the Spirit that you've written the law in our heart. And we may not know it all. We definitely do not remember it all. And we certainly do not obey it all. And so we ask for your grace and for your wisdom in our life that we may. We may worship you. That we may be in each other's lives. God, that we would see the need even for organization and leadership and and being responsible for people, but being responsible for our own souls and our own walks with you. So, Lord, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that we would be able to be participating in each other's lives in ways that gives us life. And, Father, that those of us in this room that are overwhelmed with circumstances, that you would give, you be life-giving through your word and your son and your people. For those of us who are overwhelmed, Lord, with finances, overwhelmed with the lack of finances, overwhelmed with whatever it may be, Lord, that you would be able to ease that burden by your spirit, through the power of your son, Jesus, and by bringing along people. Lord, give us the courage to ask for help and the humility to receive it. Give us the boldness to speak, and not on our own terms, but Lord, through your wisdom and your spirit, on the terms of the word of God and what you've given us. We thank you for Jesus. We praise you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you love us as your children and you are a good father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.